0: Parables are my favorite uh, section of the scriptures because there's always something else to find. If you just will spend the time, if you will dig a little bit, if you will sit with it a little bit, if you allow it to kind of soak into you, there's always more to be gained and learned in the parables. And so the only kind of a fitting title for this series was Emoji. So welcome to the Mind Blown Emoji series, and this is just about the parables. What are the parables? What do they teach us? And um, as I've been saying, the parables are where all the, the good stuff is, where Jesus, the, the ultimate teacher, is taking all of the knowledge and teaching of the Old Testament scriptures, of all of the wisdom, all the prophecy, all of the history, all of the narrative. He's taking all of it, and he's using this as his backdrop, and he's creating new stories from old stories. And in these new stories, these new worlds, he's trying to teach us about a place. The parables are about taking you to an experience that you haven't had before. How do I show you a place? How do I explain to you what it's like to be at the North Pole if you've never been there before? And the parables' words, word stories, were the most effective way to take someone to a new location that they'd never been to before before the time of tablets or iPhones or 3D or any of this kind of stuff, surround sound. Words, stories, pictures. Creating a world with words and inviting someone else to explore that world. This was the most effective way to teach someone, to to allow them to experience something. And so with the parables, we've been learning that the best way to read a parable is to say this. What if, or imagine a place where, and you begin to read. The idea is to create a picture and to step inside of it, to explore it. Um, the Chronicles of Narnia, there's a book that starts off with them in a room, and there's this painting of a ship. And as they're talking, all of a sudden, they begin to hear lightning and thunder, and they begin to see the waves on the picture begin to move. And all of a sudden, the water comes out of the picture and begins to flow into the room, and they end up being swallowed into this picture, to this other world. This is what the parables are meant to do. The parables are meant to be experienced in order to be understood. If you want to read them just kind of um, on the surface level, you won't understand them enough. The trickiest parables are the ones that seem as if they're the most simple. The ones where Jesus even gives you an answer. Well, this is what this parable is about. Those are the trickiest ones because there's always something else He's at work doing. One of the things about the parables which is very important to understand is it's always important to to notice where it's arranged, meaning what comes before the parable, what comes after the parable. So the parable that we have today, the unforgiving servant. What's interesting about this is this is not a standalone story. This this parable, this world is being crafted for us in connection with other things. And so the pretext starts with the parable of the lost sheep. Have you guys ever heard the parable of the lost sheep? I taught it like, I think like two, three years ago. The idea is this, right? There's 99 sheep who are here, and there's one that's over there. What happens? The shepherd goes and gets the the one, right? And he brings the one back, okay? And he takes that parable, and he talks, and then depending on the gospel you're reading, he goes on, he talks about other parables like it. He talks about the lost coin, and talks about basically this idea, that even though 99 coins are worth more than one coin, The way that this person, this God, cares about the one coin is when it rolls off, he's going to leave the 99 and go get the one. Even though it's smarter to protect the 99 sheep you have, the way he cares about the one, he's going to abandon in this pursuit that to anyone else who knows what is wise or smart, this is not a wise choice to leave the 99. But there's something that he's showing us about who God is. And so it's, we're curious about this, it starts with the parable of the 99 and the 1, and then it goes on to this little, this phrase about the, the Matthew 18 method. Have you guys ever heard of the Matthew 18 method? Anybody? It's very popular. No one knows about it. Awesome. Terrific. It's the idea of how we handle offense in the church, okay? So if someone wrongs you, right, you go to them and you share it, and then if they will not acknowledge it and kind of work through it you go to a brother you bring the brother back as a witness and then you try to establish wrong and that doesn't work you take them before the church who has an issue with someone in the room here's the stage come on up and we're gonna talk about it and if they won't acknowledge it we will treat them the way that we treat a Gentile or a tax collector called the Matthew 18 method right pretty awesome if you break down the Matthew 18 method there's basically three strikes okay If Arnie has wronged me, it's okay, family. If he has wronged me, basically he's got three strikes. I go to him, I bring people with me to him, and then I drag him up on the stage. He's got three chances. Three strikes, and then what? Out, right? This is the idea of the Matthew 18 method. Now, so, we have the sheep, the Matthew 18, three strikes... And then we have the question of Peter. So how does this parable start? Do you guys remember? I mean, we just read it five minutes ago. It starts with Peter. He says this. He says to Jesus, Look, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Should I forgive as many as seven times? Hmm. Of course, what's the answer of Jesus? Come on. 77. Does he actually mean 77? Okay. It's impractical to write down 77 times. Okay, okay. You're at 71, friend. You've only got six more. Try me again. I'll drag you on the stage again. How many times can I drag my brother on the stage before he doesn't get to come back again, right? And so we had this building from the sheep to the three strikes to the seven strikes to the 77 strikes and then we get this parable about forgiveness. I want you to understand something about Jesus. Jesus is always putting things out there to see how his listeners respond. Do they understand what I'm saying? Peter, who am I? <laughs> he does this so many times. Who do they say that I am? He's testing the waters. Are you getting what I'm putting out there? Are you, are you understanding me? So, for example, with the Matthew 18 method, At the end, he says, three strikes. After three strikes, we treat them just like we do the Gentiles and the tax collectors. What does that mean? We what? We boot them, right? Because tax collectors are sinners, right? And the Gentiles are not part of us. They're outsiders, correct? You guys are all like, I don't trust you. It's okay. Here's the trick, right? How does Jesus treat tax collectors? Yeah. He makes them disciples. He makes them part of the 12, doesn't he? So he throws this out there, and they go, oh, I'm not touching that. So because Peter's not going to touch that because it's hot, he's going to drop it. He's going to ask another question. I'm not going to touch that, Jesus, so I'm going to ask you this question. So how many times do I forgive someone? Because I'm not playing with what you just said about tax collectors. Forget that. So let's get down to the actual brass tax, Jesus. That all sounded really great. 99 to 1, that's terrific, yeah, this whole process, terrific. The tax collectors, yeah, I love them too. But if Arnie is a jerk, how many strikes? 77. <laughs> 77. <laughs> Knowing that Peter probably is going to be okay with 77. Okay, I'll take 77. Done. Because I don't know like, what else he's going to say after that. He goes somewhere else and he, he shares this story. Imagine if, imagine a place where, remember, he's he's, he's describing the the kingdom. The kingdom is like, imagine a place where there is a a king, and this king has a servant, and this servant owes this king an exorbitant amount of money. Imagine $1 million. $1 million, right? Okay, okay. And he brings a servant to him. It's time to to pay your debt. You owe it to me, I've given you time, it's time to pay up your debt. The servant doesn't have the money. So what's the response? This king is very kind and loving, by the way. Okay, sure. There's no problem there. I'm just going to put you in prison. I'm going to take your entire family and I'm going to sell them for money. Your children, your wife. This is a really loving king. Now, remember, Jesus loves to create God as an anti-hero, as a bad guy, right? He was the unjust judge. And now who's God? God is now the king who's going to sell children and a wife to pay off the debt of this man. He's going to put him into prison until he pays the debt, which that was always a very logical system, right? I'm going to put you in prison until you pay me. Amen. That's a good system, right? And so in response, the servant goes, I can't do it. I'm so sorry. I'll pay you back. I'll do whatever I have to do to make it right. Here's the trickiness in the parable. Watch this. What's the response of the king? Uh, verse 26 but the servant fell down kneeled before him and said please be patient with me and I'll pay you back the master had compassion on that servant released him here's the tricky part and forgave the debt now when the servant leaves here we follow the story the servant goes and finds people he owed one million dollars to the king forgiven and now the servant goes to someone who owes him a hundred dollars Pay up. The guy says, I can't do it. So what happens? Drags him to prison, the same prison he was destined for. Here, you're going to stay here until you can pay me back. The word gets back to the king, and the king's response was actually pretty interesting. Let's go ahead and read it just for effect. When his fellow servants saw what happened, verse 31, they were deeply offended. They came and told their master all that happened. His master called the first servant and said, You wicked servant, I I forgave you all the debt because you appealed to me. Shouldn't you also have mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had mercy on you? His master was furious and handed him over to the guard responsible for punishing prisoners. This is called torture, by the way. (laughs) Until he had paid the whole debt. My heavenly father will also do the same to you. If you don't forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. Now this parable poses some really interesting questions to us. Here's the first one. Who is God in this story? Who is God in the story? The first, there are two options here. There are two images of this king. The first one is the king who has every legal right to punish the person who owed the debt every right in the entire book this king is rightfully justified to punish the person for the debt so much so he's going to throw him in prison he's going to sell children and wives for money is God that character or is God a debt forgiving God this is very important You've probably heard this before in the parables. This is a consistent theme in the parables. But I tell you this too. It's not just a theme in the parables. It's a theme in the New Testament. It's a theme in the Old Testament. What type of God is this? Is God the God who's going to drag Abraham and Isaac all the way up to the hill and make him take his son and pull the knife and slaughter his son? Is that who God is? Or is God the God who says, no, this is not who I am? You understand something. There's a theme from Genesis to Revelation that does not stop, pounding on the door of your heart. Who is God to you? The way Jesus phrased it, who do you say that I am? This is a consistent question. Who do you really see me as? This is the most important question this parable asks us. How do you see God? What if God was good? Now, it doesn't tell us that the servant is deaf. Okay, so we think he heard. When the master said, your debt is forgiven, we think he heard that. We are assuming he heard that. So then why does his behavior show the opposite? There's only one logical reason that this servant is going out with this behavior to begin to accumulate as much wealth as he can, does he really believe this master is going to forgive this debt? Will this master change his mind? Can I trust this master? How about this? Is this God really a good God? Now, I spent years in school learning about scriptures and God I'll say this, I've heard a lot of horse manure about who God is in school, okay? We use a lot of fancy words in seminary to describe God and parts of God as good. We talk about the holy, justified, sovereign, good God, which is code for it doesn't look good to anyone else, but it really is good, trust me. If I brought my... my five-year-old out here, and I said, okay, if this master came to you and was going to throw you in prison because you owed him money, does that sound like a good God to you? He's going <laughs> to... He'll probably talk about Spider-Man or Superman coming to take care of that villain, because that is the behavior of a bad guy. If I say, hey, look, you're in big trouble, Liam. You did bad things, and guess what? It's time for a Spanking. And I said, but, I'll forgive you. Is he going to say, that is bad behavior? Is he going to say, hmm. there are moments with my kids where I will have a moment of mercy. <sighs> okay, I forgive you. And then they'll always push it. You know what I'm talking about? Like on the way out the door, they'll like hit each other. Will dad change his mind? He said that it's all good, I forgive you, but how long will that last? Is God really good or is God bad? Who is God? This is the fundamental question of the parable, but you don't realize this. This is the question God is asking your heart your entire life. Do you think I'm good? Am I a good God? This is the most difficult question for most of the answer. I'm not talking about like your mental answer. Yes, God is good and loving. He's kind and just and blah, 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 all that. I don't, I, yeah. I'm not interested in that. How does your life show that you see God? Your actions, the way when you mess up, when you make the biggest mistake of your life, How do you assume God is going to react to you? That tells me everything I need to know about the God you see in your mind. The God you see in your heart. It doesn't matter what God says. It doesn't matter that you have an image of a God who loves you so much to sacrifice himself on the cross as an image of love. What do you really see? What do you really see? And here's what's going to show who you see God as. How do you live your life? See, this servant heard the words of the master. Your debt is forgiven. But what this servant really heard, I'm going to throw you in prison. I'm going to sell your wife and your children to pay your debt. That's what the servant really heard. I know if you guys have kids or grandkids or friends have kids, kids are really good at locking in on the first thing that hits them. So, With Liam, I love Liam. If I say, "Liam, I'm gonna whoop your butt," he's gonna run as fast as he can. If I chase him to the house, saying, "I love you," here's candy, here's ice cream, he's not hearing a word of it. Come on, he thinks I'm lying because the first words are the ones he's gonna remember. I want you to get this. I want you to hear this. To the hearers of Jesus, the people who are listening to the parable. The first word about who God is that they had ever heard was not, God is good. The first thing they'd ever heard about this God, the first thing you have ever heard about your God was not, God is good. I want you just to let that sink in. If your first memory of your parent was them spanking you, I don't care how many explanations, I do this because I love you, I'm teaching you a lesson, I don't care what you try to do, you're never going to unwrite that image of who that parent is. There's always going to be a distrust. There's always going to be a sneaking suspicion. When they come for the hug, when the hand comes to, there's always going to be a pullback, a restraint. If the first word is God is If the first touch you ever received from God or from a parent or a person was a soft one, a loving one, a safe embrace, that is what's going to be cemented in your heart and mind about who this person is. What this parable is showing us is very clear. You don't really believe that God is good. If you did, here is how you would live. If you actually heard the words of God that said, your debt is forgiven. This is what would shape your life. There's a quote by C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's one of the most powerful teaching tools I've ever seen about, about God in the Scriptures. It says this. They're talking about, about Aslan, who's this lion. He's a symbol for Jesus in, in the books. and says this, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. <laughs> I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I should feel nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? Said Mr. Beaver, who said anything about safe? Of course, he isn't safe, but he is good. This is a God who isn't a safe God. This God can do anything He wants. He could throw you into prison or whatever prison that that you imagine that being. He could do any form of harm to you He ever wanted to do. And you could do nothing about it. This is not a safe God, not a tame God, not a God you put in boxes. You have to approach this God on terms where you will never be safe. You will always be vulnerable around this God. The safety doesn't come in this being a powerless God or a small God or a simple God. The safety comes in that this is a good God. With my kids, they love dogs. I'm not sure if you've got kids who love dogs. Okay, it's all right. If, if my kids don't love cats, amen, hallelujah. Amen. I'm raising them right. I'm raising them right. Do not trust those things. They're conniving evil. They're My kids will run up to any dog ever and hug them around the neck. Now, as a parent, what are you going to do? As a grandparent, as, as, as an adult, when you see a kid running to a strange dog, what are you going to do? Whoa, 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 whoa. We don't know this dog. Okay? We have two very different assumptions. All right? With the first assumption from my children, they've never met a dog that was bad. My kids have only ever known good dogs, right? Their assumption is every dog is good. I, on the other hand, have met many other types of dogs. I do not assume this. I assume you are a bad dog until you are proven to be a good dog. This is what we're talking about. In the parable last week, we talked about approaching God like children. A child who, a child has no assumption. They do not assume evil. They assume good. Unless this child has grown up in a terrible environment, children tend to assume good. When they see the dog, they're going to run to the dog, embrace the dog. Unless that kid has been bitten. I have a cousin who was attacked by a dog. Amen. I was faster than him that day. (laughs) And he had a very different approach to dogs than I did. took him a long time to unlearn that understanding of dogs, right? If your first experience with God was a God that bit, that hit, that could not be trusted. If your first experience with God was with God that was a bad God. I don't care what beautiful church language you were taught, the first story I was ever told about God is that God is mad at me. That's what I heard. They could tell me all the beautiful language and God is so great and loving. In his just holiness and beautiful beauty, he's mad at you and angry with you because of your sin. I don't care what you say after that. Oh, and he loves you so much. He's not going to beat you. He's going to beat his son for you. Amen. Hallelujah. And the promise of that, the good news, is you get to spend eternity around this God who was about to beat the poop out of you. Okay. I want you to get this. Is God good to you? What this parable is throwing at us is this. What if God is a good God? What if this God had every right, every ability, all power, all control to do any kind of harm to us he ever wanted to do, but chose not to. What if this is a good God? How would this change your entire world? And the one thing it tells us is this. If you believe that you have a God that is not good, or just slightly good, or just a little bit good, you're going to see who that God really is to you by the way you live your life, the way you treat the human beings around you. I never need to ask anyone about doctrine. I never need to ask anyone about scriptures or about their opinions of this or that. I never need to do any of that to to find out who someone thinks God is. They can tell me whatever they want to about their favorite books or scriptures or I pray this many hours a day. I can tell who God is to you. I can tell if you've seen Jesus or not by the way you live your life. And you can tell the same about me. And you can tell us someone grows into the knowledge of Christ, and you can tell us someone runs from the revelation of God in Christ. If you trust that God can really be that good, because here's what all the parables are. All the parables of the kingdom of heaven are these baby steps. They are preparing the world to receive a God that really is that good? Can you really accept a God that's willing to take all of the pain and the brokenness and the ugliness and the sin of the world into Himself? Can you accept a God like that? Are you mature and healthy enough and whole enough as a human being to let someone forgive you? I'm not sure if you've known people like this, Most of us have a part of us, we're not very good at receiving gifts, we're not very good at receiving forgiveness or embrace, we're not very good at receiving love. Most people I know are not good at being loved. They're not good at being forgiven, being honored, being appreciated. Most of us are not good at receiving the things that we deeply want in our lives. There's a brokenness in us. The challenge of the gospel is this, in your brokenness, are you going to be willing to receive everything you ever wanted from God? Are you willing to receive a God that is that good? Most of us are not. Most of us are going to respond the same way the servant did. I don't really believe that's how good this God is. I'm going to live my life as if my debt is being held over my head. And I'm going to hold the evil and the sins and the imperfection, the brokenness of everyone else around me. I'm going to make sure they know how sinful and broken and evil that they are. And I'm going to make sure that I earn forgiveness. I'm going to work my way to pay my debt myself. I'm going to stop sinning. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to learn more. I'm going to go to church more. I'm going to earn that debt-freeness. I'm going to... Dave Ramsey myself into heaven. I'm going to debt snowball that thing. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to debt snowball my sins. As, as helpful as that is with your finances, it doesn't, work, it doesn't work that way in heaven. There's only one payment for debt, my, my friends. The grace of God. Period. While we were still sinners... Still in our debt. We hadn't figured out how to budget yet. We hadn't figured out how to save. We hadn't figured out how to pay off our debts. Well, we're still due. It was erased. And it wasn't temporarily erased to give you time to go have a grace period to work up your wealth to pay God off. It wasn't a grace period to go get more holy. It was erased. Can you stomach that much goodness in your life? When you're surrounded by a world of brokenness and evil where there's shootings every single week, we've had shootings nonstop for seven weeks in a row. Are you able to stomach that kind of goodness? Do you have enough hope in your heart to picture a God that big and that good and that loving? Is there enough shimmer of hope in your life? Is there there enough goodness left in us to imagine a God that big, that loving, that good? Would you stand with me? parables always kind of get me because I always feel like I've grown so much I've come so far I'm doing so well (laughs) the God I serve is so loving and good and just and kind blah 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 and then I read the parables and I go I don't know if I can stomach that much goodness yet I don't know in the deepest part of my heart if I really think God could be that good And because I'm not sure if God is that good, I'm not ready yet to live a life like that yet. I'm not ready yet to live a life of forgiving wrongs. I'm not ready yet to live a life of receiving love and affirmation and allowing people to be in my life the way I really want them to be. I don't know if I'm that whole yet. But here is the ultimate catch in all the scriptures. If you haven't caught it, here it is for you. If there is a sin that cannot be pardoned, if there is an unforgivable sin, it's this. The only sin which cannot be pardoned is the unwillingness to pardon your brother or sister. I'll read it. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if you don't forgive your brother or sister from your heart. I'll translate it. The only catch, the only hook in the gospel of Jesus is this. You can only receive what you're willing to extend. You can be forgiven for anything if you're willing to extend forgiveness. God will meet you in any situation if you're willing to step for your brother or sister. This is the ultimate hook of the gospel of grace. Yeah, you're right. It's free. You can have it. It will cover anything. It will forgive anything. It will meet you anywhere. It will pull you out of anywhere. But there's one hook. Who are you not willing to extend that to? You can only have a God that good if you're willing to have a God that good for everyone else around you. God can only treat you that good if you can imagine God treating that person who you just cannot stand that good. If you can stomach a God who can love the most sinful, hateful person you've ever imagined in your life, then you can have a God who can love you like that. The other trick in this parable, if you didn't notice it, is that us the hearers, the listeners, we owed the king a great debt, $1 million. And our brother and sister owed us a $100. Did you catch that? The greatest debtor, the greatest sinner is always... Sorry. You! you I know you. It's always... We know that we are receiving this grace, this goodness of God when we are the people we see as the most undeserving. When I see anyone else as the most undeserving of this this goodness, of this God, I know that I haven't allowed myself to receive it yet. Father, we just offer this to you. We're not there. We haven't made it. We know that These parables hit hard, Lord. We all have people who we just think are just not good enough or shouldn't be allowed in or shouldn't be forgiven or surely there should be hoops from the jump through. Lord, we ask that you would be at work by the Spirit of God inside of us. Help us mature and heal, become whole, Grow in Christ enough that we can stomach this much goodness, that we can hope this big, that we can accept this kind of God. And the hardest thing in the ugly and the evil and the sin that we see in ourselves, we ask that you would even meet us in that place. Can you really love a person like me? No strings attached, no hurdles, nothing to jump through. Are you really that good? So Father, we ask that we would be people and neighbors and parents and spouses and friends and brothers and sisters in Christ who would model and share and extend a goodness that big, a hope that bright, a God that amazing, that we would be that type of people and that type of church. In Jesus' name.